Welcome to the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital. Join us as we learn from pros who have helped thousands of investors live better lives. I'm Brian Moore, and I'll be chatting with some of the brightest minds in the financial advisory business, bringing you insights on practice management and investment research that works for advisors and their clients. Joining me today on the Active Advisor Podcast as my fellow colleague and co-host is Dale Corman, CFP and CIMA. Dale is an investment consultant at Harbor, covering the Southeast region of the U.S. Our guest today is Aaron Gilman, CFA, CFP. Aaron is the Chief Investment Officer at Independent Financial Partners, short for IFP, and the president of IFP Asset Management. Aaron has over 15 years of experience in the real estate and investment industries and has leveraged his self-taught Python programming skills to enhance his approach to portfolio management and help his teams reach the next level. Aaron, how are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks for having me. We're definitely going to have to dig into the self-taught Python programming skills. That's something that, you know, I've looked at. I'm pretty good at Microsoft Excel, but that's about it. Quick question. What's the first memory you have related to money or investing? Yeah, so that had to be you know, leading up to the dot-com bubble. My dad, he worked for Hewlett-Packard, sold networking hubs and things like that. And so he got really drawn into the dot-com bubble and you know all the internet stocks and you know companies without an actual business model or business plan. That's my first memory is just essentially just learning from that. And that is what drew me into behavioral finance and learning about what are the things that cause people to you know overextend and chase the hot dot you know, and then kind of go after these tech stocks and avoid these massive drawdowns. So I think that's my earliest memory. I think it was like 13 or 12 or so, just kind of sitting next to them while I think E-Trade was the platform we used back then. So kind of interesting overall, but that is my first memory. Excellent. Before we get into anything else, you've mentioned to me recently that you have a surgery coming up. And of course, we hope it goes smoothly. But for the audience and fellow pet owners out there, Do you want to give maybe a a public service announcement as to what not to do post-op when you have a very large dog? Yeah, I guess I would say if your dog weighs more than 100 pounds, don't worry so much about the picking up of the dog from the surgeon. It's the getting him home. That's the tough part. And make sure you stretch. (laughs) As somebody who has a 100-pound dog, yes, that is key. (laughs) May I ask what breed? Any Corso for that guy. Oh, nice. 140 pounds. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So I'm basically, I'm getting surgery and he's done with his ACL surgery. So we're trading places. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear he's doing better or she's doing better and good luck in yours. Thank you. Wanted to actually circle back to the CIO aspect of your role. So you're the CIO at IFP and the president of IFP Asset, the RA side. Mm -hmm. You recently entered into a strategic venture with the retirement PPP. Wondering if you could actually give us a little bit of background about IFP, your kind of historical affiliation, focus, and then where you know you've seen the evolution over the past couple of years and where you're at now. So we started out as a what's called a hybrid RA with LPL Financial. And then in 2019, we broke away and launched our own broker dealer just so we could kind of control things and really control our own destiny more or less and do the things that we wanted to do and really provide the best experience we can for our advisors. Our advisors are fiercely independent. And so our business model is always kind of a a constant pursuit of integrations and fully open architecture. Our objective is to be agnostic to the custodians that our advisors want to use. So ultimately, there's a reason why not everyone does that, because it's a lot of work, a lot of different moving parts and pieces. And in 2019, we launched the broker-dealer. We initially had probably six custodians, one custodian for the brokerage business. 
And so we're now in a phase where we've got pretty much everything we need onboarded, although there's new technology and fintech that seems like it comes out every week that we need to evaluate. I think Pontero is the name of the recent one that we just added as well. So, you know, advisors can essentially charge on defined contribution plans without having to do a brokerage window. But, you know, we're always in a constant pursuit where, you know, the traditional ways of running our business and making money really doesn't work well with our business model. So, you know, from things like partners programs and conferences, you know, when our advisors are able to do their own thing and we don't fence them in and make them use like 10 money managers. So we have to do things a little bit differently. And so there's not really a precedent that you can really find or mirror in our industry. So that's what we're constantly trying to do, evaluating other industries. What are some other business models outside of financial services and RAs, the pieces that we can adapt, you know, whether it's Amazon, you know, how they essentially put products and stuff in their marketplace and how they sort them and do things that way and pay for eyeballs and views and things like that, I think is a better approach. And so ultimately that's the overarching theme in terms of what we've been working on, kind of where we're heading, just the constant refining of that process and business model. That's great. Appreciate that. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. I've known you since you joined IFP over a decade ago. So kind of to back up a little bit and then sort of look forward, what was it that initially drew you to IFP all those years ago? And you talked about this a bit, but what do you see, Aaron, as the primary edge in your business model? Yeah. So what brought me to IFP, being the chief investment officer, potentially, you know, when I was 25, I think. So that was the initial part. And then also the ability to, to really build something from the ground up. I love building things and seeing them work and people actually use them. The main motivator for me is just building things, you know, more of an entrepreneurial mindset. I wasn't really ever drawn to somewhere where I had a defined, you know, path where I was going to make X here, do this for five years, and then you make Y and, and so forth. And you get some prescribed bonuses, kind of like the CPA model where, you know, you have a defined benefit at the end of the road and you like everything's set for you. I don't like that. I like having kind of on cap potential on the upside. And so what drew me in, you know, outside of the role itself was just the ability to essentially build something and, you know, potentially reap the benefits and upside. So I don't want to ever be a place where I'm capped, where I have like a very refined and a very small set of duties that I have to do day in, day out. I like changing things. I like being able to go home and just kind of think about what I want to build next and, you know, where I want to take this thing. And it's a great environment for it. So I've never really been bound inside of a box where I'm only allowed to do these three things. And so that's what really brought me here, keeps me here, you know, gets me to wake up excited every morning. Nice. Well, that and your dogs, right? <laughs> they help, yeah, they, help well, the they keep me up at night. They don't really help me. <laughs> Fair enough. I totally share a lot of the thoughts and the reasons kind of why you joined IFP and why you're there. We could look forward a little bit, say three, four or five years out. Where would you like to see the firm? And where do you see yourself working on right now? What are a couple of things, the visions that you have or a couple of projects that you see kind of coming to fruition in that time frame? Sure. So that's, you know, kind of a lifetime for me, but, you know, ultimately I think what we're working on is just expanding our affiliation models. So as I mentioned earlier, we were a hybrid RA with LPL. And so what we're trying to crack and I don't know if it's ever going to be able to be figured out, but opening up our platform for hybrids as well. And so ultimately there's a couple outside RAs that were with us and kind of rolled out and started their own thing that I still manage money for. And so, you know, conceptually, it's not that hard to think a little bit further and say like, all right, you know, can we open this up so you don't have to join our corporate RA? The problem is it just, you end up conflicted if we do it the way that everyone else does it, where commission business and brokerage business, everyone knows it's a declining percentage of business mix. And so do you want to sign on and take a bunch of direct business mutual fund stuff where it's a big liability, a lot of books and records they have to drag around for a decade. 
I think ultimately what we're trying to think through and you know understand if it's even attractive to the market is just, can we be indifferent between the two to where we provide services and whatnot on both the RA and the broker-dealer side? And essentially, the main, I think, difference in value proposition that we have is if you want to come and use this as an incubator, I think of it as like a staged approach. You roll out and you want to essentially become independent, but you don't want to start your own RA because it's just too much. So, you know, join a firm like us, build your practice up and then roll out, start your own RA, have a dual registration where you can still do some commission business. Because I do think that there are certain products and situations where commission just makes sense. It's cheaper for the client. And so I do think having both of those is good areas to have in your quiver more or less. And so I think what we're trying to just figure out and evaluate is, is there a way that we can be indifferent between the two? Is there a way that we can bring people and firms on, help them grow, let those firms then roll out, start their own RA. And then if they want to roll out and be completely independent and not affiliated at all, we are hundred percent great with that. And we're very friendly just because we've experienced kind of the the other side of that. And so, you know, aside from us looking at things a little bit differently, I think the main idea there is just being business friendly and letting you keep what you build with us and take it with you and, and make it portable. Before you arrived at IFP, you spent some time at a firm focused kind of exclusively on high net worth individuals. Mm-hmm. We've all been in this business a while. And I think it's one of those things where, where you're working now may either be a stepping stone or either way, the previous jobs and positions that we've had have all kind of added to our knowledge base. What is it that you learned there and helped you in your current role? I was only there for a few years, but it was the start of my career. And so I learned a ton. You know, I started out in 2008. So the first thing I learned was you know, from a lot of mistakes that were made that were honest, just behavioral snafus, I guess is would be the term, but you know, just little things that everyone kind of gets into both clients and advisors. So I learned, you know, right out the gate, some of the things just, you know, if you get a higher interest rate for something and you know, it's an alternative to money market, whatever it might be, you know, there's usually some extra risk. And if you can't figure out what that risk is, then you know, you should probably avoid it ultimately. And so that was kind of the first thing, but in terms of like high net worth clients, I did a lot of planning. So I have my CFP as well as my CFA. And so I learned a lot about the planning side and all the different configurations and kind of components of wealth and sources of wealth. Since it was 2008, I had interned there for a year and a half before I graduated as well. And so I do some of the clients and was able to see kind of what happened in 08, you know, whether it was like restricted stock units where someone's entire CEO of a bank that will remain unnamed, spending about 600K a year, roughly. And that was like the financial planning assumptions and all the net worth was RSUs. And so that was all predicated on the stock price of the bank being at a certain level. And so when 08 happened, you know, the bank went out of business and all those RSUs were essentially worthless. And that was someone going from a millionaire, you know, multi-multi-millionaire to almost broke essentially, you know, overnight. And so those types of things were just knowing about the sources of your wealth and making sure that if you're spending a lot, that you actually have some durability and it's not all contingent upon certain price targets being met and maintained. I also learned a lot of the services that I'm building on now, essentially to attract high net worth clients. I mean, I got the backbone and foundation from my experience there. So just essentially providing investments in kind of the purest access vehicles for things for whatever the investors qualified for. So QP investors, qualified purchasers, I think that's a big focus of my time. And a lot of the services I'm building now are surrounding qualified purchasers and just getting them access to things that they qualify for, whether that's hedge funds, private equity. We're also building out 
custom 1031 exchanges. So for people that have a million dollar, you know, 1031 and up, we'll go out and actually vet out properties and essentially do a individual customized 1031 exchange that we essentially split the commission with the advisor on. And so it's very hands-on. We can essentially find deals that are attractive to the investor because they might be an owner operator and they might have specific viewpoints that they want to express. And so we can help them do that. And we can also, you know, match, make it so the terms line up so you don't have to just put people into a DST or some off-the-shelf product that doesn't line up well. So a lot of what we're doing is just like very bespoke, custom-fitted investment solutions and things that we can do because of the amount of money that someone has. And so same thing goes for credit investors too. So you know, we kind of look at it as a multi-shelf approach where we have, you know, different services and products and investments that are available. And some things aren't available when you go downstream because you have to, you know, wrap 10 wrappers around it and it ends up being too expensive to where you're better off with just traditional stocks and bonds and things you can get in ETF form. But yeah, did that answer your question? It does. I want to circle back. You mentioned some of the 1031 and kind of helping clients out with real estate and stuff like that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, just because I think that is an aspect that really kind of dovetails nicely into all the services that financial advisory firms can offer. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah. So, you know, ultimately I brought on a bright young guy from University of Tampa about a year and a half ago who his parents owned a self-storage business. And when he came on board, I let him essentially spend a lot of time hands-on helping them with their 1031 himself. Because that was always something I wanted to build out. It was just, you know, a very customized bespoke solution that was different than what everyone else had out there. And so, you know, I've let him kind of run with it and kind of learn from his own experiences and kind of things he did and didn't like about it. And so I've really let that kind of be the guiding light and let him run with it and build it out as another service that we offer. And it kind of goes hand in hand. We have a ability for advisors to refer investment banking business to, and we get a referral fee and we split it with the advisor. And you know, we're just trying to build up this nice kind of suite of solutions. But yeah, 1031s is part of it. It's kind of cooled off a little bit, you know, since uh, interest rates have gone up and the real estate market's cooled down a bit. But, you know, last year it was all pretty much anyone wanted to talk about. This is great. I mean, you've given a number of examples so you're trying to keep track of all these. So you're the CIO of IFP, you're the president of IFP Asset Management. You recently got engaged, which is exciting. Congrats. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're recovering from this encounter with your dog. You have upcoming surgery. So clearly you have a lot of spare time, right? A lot of extra time. So in all of that spare time, I mentioned earlier that you've taught yourself computer programming. So what started that interest? Like what prompted that direction for you? What are some specific applications that you use in your day job? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, what I did is I kind of maxed out Excel. I was trying to do kind of too much and I started to look at it and I said, you know, there's probably a lot more I can do if I just try to learn how to code. And so I'd always viewed, and I think what most people think is the same way I thought, you know, I had friends who were like computer engineers in college and I always looked at it like, wow, you must be so smart, you know, and they are, but I always viewed it as something that's like way outside of my potential. Oh my God, I would have to go back to school to learn that. So I always kind of just like handicapped myself. So I just always kind of veered towards Excel. And then you start looking at Visual Basic and writing macros and kind of the code in the background. And so, you know, I had built a billing app at that first firm I was at just to add my hands on a little bit of everything. But, you know, they came to me and said, hey, you seem like you're good at Excel. Can you build a billing solution so we can automate our quarterly billing process? Because before it was, you know, they were taking stacks of statements from Schwab and had someone going through and highlighting the balances and then transposing them, keying them into a spreadsheet. And I said, uh, probably, let me, uh, I'll take a look at 
at it and it kind of interested me. And I've always looked for ways to where I could have like an overlapping, something that helps the firm I'm at and also helps me, you know, learn a new skill, even though it might be outside of what I truly want my career and kind of focus to be, you know, it's worth it, I think, in my opinion. And so I've always had that kind of mindset. And so I built, you know, it took me like three months, maybe, you know, got Schwab to give us data downloads, which is a novel concept back then, but built out some macros and started to learn the visual basic coding stuff. And looking back, it was a freaking mess. And I would be shocked if that spreadsheet program worked for more than a year or two after that. But, you know, it saved them probably two months of an employee's time per quarter. So I started seeing that and I was like, wow, this is like super powerful if I can harness the power of what I just did, but across RAs and the advisory space. At that time, there wasn't a lot of fintech, right? It was kind of ripe for, especially the smaller RA practices where, you know, they have a little bit of technology savviness, but it's more on like the IT side, not so much on the programming side. And so seeing how that worked just kind of really got me interested. And I had always in the back of my mind been like, you know, I should probably just learn how to code, you know, probably started at IFP and then maybe within a year or two, I started learning R, which is another kind of statistical programming language. And so I don't know why I chose that. I think it was just, there's a lot of examples that I could, you know, I'm kind of more, I guess, what an engineer would refer to as like a hacker learning process and kind of mentality. I'd kind of reverse engineer to learn and just see how other people are doing things. And so that's how I really started out was with R and then Ruby. I didn't really know what I was doing. That's the thing is if you don't really know how to install things and you spend most of your time initially learning how to install packages and, you know, getting things to actually work. And so that's where probably a lot of the time was spent for me. It was just like hacking my way through. And, you know, like I said, my dad worked for Hewlett Packard. So I was used to like, get. I didn't take any official computer classes or anything, but I was always going in and like just going into settings and like just doing, you know, hacky type stuff and messing around with HTML code and stuff like that. But yeah, it really just started with a curiosity and just really kind of discounted myself and the ability to learn how to code. And so I started with Excel, Visual Basic, capped that out, and then, you know, moved on to R. And then it took a while to, you know, once you get over that hump, but started building out applications. And it takes a while until you can actually build stuff that is like actually useful. But after, you know, a couple of years, I was starting to build out actual apps and whatnot. And so that's where, you know, today it's teaching people how to code. I've probably taught two or three younger guys since I have been able to do so. And so that's helped me like really strengthen up and teaching them the way that I wish I would have learned, which is like, keep things simple and just keep the setup minimal. Don't, you know, cause it just takes forever. And if you know certain things about operating systems, whether it's like better to be Windows or Mac or iOS, whatever you want to call it, you know, that can make a difference depending on the programming language. And so I think just like spending the least amount of time. And so there's a lot of good developments since then that makes it even easier, like Google Collab, where you can just spin up what's called a Jupyter Notebook without having to install anything. It's all in the cloud. And you can essentially just start writing code and executing these notebooks kind of line by line. Yeah, if that was around when I started, it probably would have given me a bit more lift, but I would have learned a lot less about the actual setup, which is good to have, especially when you're launching apps on cloud servers, you know, so it all kind of happens for a reason, I guess, and leads into my knowledge today. And it's pretty widespread. But yeah, I think, you know, once you learn one language, it's pretty easy to start to learn all the other ones as well. I would be remiss if I didn't ask, knowing what you know now, knowing where you're at and having taught a few people, Mm -hmm. what would you recommend if you could look back through all your knowledge and all your experiences, what would be say two or three things that you know you could recommend to somebody else who's looking to kind of get to be self-taught programming is it's python for dummies you know maybe is that google collab where do you think would be a couple of different things that you could point out and go for somebody who wants to do this check out these two things yeah so i mean the way i learn is 
probably a bit different than actually I know it's a bit different than the majority of people. You know, a lot of folks prefer the boot camps, the code boot camps and stuff. I mean, I have guys who've worked for me who, you know, I've had success with learning that way. I never did great in classroom settings. I was always just interested and I go at a different pace than everyone else. And so I, I get extremely bored and it's counterproductive for me. But I, I honestly, I see it a lot with the code boot camps. It gives you kind of the, like the illusion that you can code and then, you know, you go out and try to do something on your own and you can't really because you don't have like the training wheels on anymore. And so everyone's taking those and they're popular. I think the best thing I would suggest is just a really, you got to be hungry and, and just extremely interested in building and creating things that help you. And so starting to figure out what are some problems, I think that's where I really accelerated. It was just like, all right, what are some problems that I'm like real world problems at work that I'm dealing with you know, yeah. every day, whether it's, you know, inconsistency with the way we're running our equity models or, you know, consistencies with our tactical models, things like that, trying to solve and make those. So they're essentially, you know, ironclad and there's no human error and it's all just essentially rules-based. That's a great place to start, you know, find something day to day that you do, or that some people that work for you or work with you do that is just mundane and try to automate it. Just go home in your spare time and literally just go look at, you know, open source codes, a phenomenal invention. And so I think if that didn't exist, I don't think I would have been able to learn how to code. So I want to dig into kind of the market a little bit. So you always seem to have a really good grip on what's going on in the market, you know, leading trends and themes. You already mentioned that you don't watch the big publications, you know, CNBC and the like, you, know, you like to kind of dig into the raw data more. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, maybe at the risk of giving up some of your secret sauce, what publications do you like and trust that help you kind of construct your market view for your firm? Yeah. So, I mean, the big thing is I, I like capital market assumptions for when I'm firming up, you know, start of the year, more strategic thinking. And so, you know, the JP Morgan capital market assumptions have been around for a long time and they really kind of dig into the actual details and how they arrive at their assumptions. BlackRock recently published more details around it and made a really cool interactive site. So those are the kind of the two pieces that I use to just see like 10, 15, 20 years out strategically, you know, what's out there. I run, you know, my own optimizers to where I'll take this capital market assumptions and run, you know, hundreds of different iterations of what does a 60-40 look like if, you know, I run based on JP Morgan's capital market assumptions with no constraints. You know, what if I just look at what does the equity allocation look like if I run a max sharp ratio type of optimization routine and you know, you get some pretty funky results. So, you know, you have to end up, you know, constraining optimizations quite a bit. And so it's just an exercise I like to go through annually when those come out at year end. So that's kind of more strategic thinking. The rest is really a, like I use, you know, St. Louis Federal Reserve, Fred website and API. So, I mean, it's all free data. It's phenomenal. You know, I, I was kind of early trying to use data for investing and coding and all that. And so I remember when I was first starting coding, Yahoo Finance was like the free data source that everyone used. And there wasn't yeah. really a whole lot of options. <laughs> and then one day Yahoo Finance cut the free data off and it was like, you know, complete <laughs> chaos in the quant investing world. And so, you know, when that happened, and I'm sure it was true for everyone, I, I just looked at it and I was like, all right, I should just probably just start paying for data, you know, being smart about it because you can rack up data bills real quick and get yes. some nice recurring fees. And so like Quandle now, I think it's called NASDAQ data or something like that. You know, it's a good place you can start playing around with data sets and whatnot. But I just like taking the data. And I think the biggest thing I've learned over the years is 
I started out trying to learn and know everything every minute of every day. And so that's, you know, 24 seven having CNBC or Bloomberg TV on. And, you know, what I realized is that it's better to know what not to pay attention to more so than what to pay attention to. And so I like just controlling my own flow, not dealing with headlines because it just, when we're talking about behavioral stuff and kind of my behavioral roadblocks and issues that I have, the headlines and kind of sensationalist stuff, it just, it's distracting for me. And so I ultimately have a finite set of things that I look at and I don't let those change based on, you know, a headline comes out that says X statistic is showing this and it's, you know, there's always something new and some new way of proving, you know, a bullish or bearish thesis. So I think it's like over time, just refining that and just staying true to it. And it's not to say I don't add new things to my arsenal every so often, but it's a long process and I got to have some proof and, and, you know, show that it actually works over time. But I think that's the biggest thing. And I think in our industry specifically, and I'm sure it's true across other industries, everyone loves to just copy other people's work and charts. You know, you see snippets of the same charts flowing through hundreds of publications and no one ever digs in and says like, maybe I should check that data and like try to replicate it and do it on my own. And so I still do that. If I see something that looks interesting, you know, a chart or a stat, I go try to grab it myself and run the numbers and and see if it's actually legitimate. And you'd be surprised in our industry how little of it that you can actually recreate and how many of these things make themselves onto mainstream media and just takes an extra hour or two to just dig into it a little bit and fact check. And I guess it's probably the same thing with fake news that globally (laughs) that, that everyone's dealing with the social media and fake posts getting reposted. And yeah, it's the same thing in our industry where people take stuff that has you know issues in terms of just the way it was presented and correlations between things that aren't you know legitimate. And I think that's where I focus most of my time is just making sure and fact-checking everything. And if something's legit, then yeah, I think I'll roll with it then and incorporate it into my daily flow. But that's kind of where I'm at on that. Oh, awesome. So it sounds like you have a healthy skepticism of just the general broad market thought distribution, which is great. So do I, you know, and then it does take some time to try to find that kind of nugget. Sometimes that that person that kind of looks at the world a little bit different. What is one, what you perceive as just a general consensus market-wide view or portfolio allocation decisions could be something like 60-40 that you see or you talk to your colleagues across the country that is kind of in the norm, I guess, or widely held and believed that you disagree with? I would say there's a top three for me on that. I think the big one that I always hear, and it's more so with clients in terms of like their fears and biases is Europe's still, you know, a big no-no for a lot of investors. That's, you know, probably the number one request that I get from people when it comes to customization is like, I like what you're doing, but no Europe exposure. And it's all has to do with, you know, Russia, Ukraine conflict. And, you know, ultimately when everyone's on one side of a trade, usually the opposite happens. And so I think we're probably well into that playing out a little bit here, but that was probably my you know number one thing, at least last year. And it didn't really have anything to do with the war and conflict over there. More so just my experience with the imbalances of viewpoints and consensuses in our industry specifically. So that'd probably be number one. I think number two is probably just, you know, and this is already playing out as well, but value stocks just globally. I mean, I think Dale and I might've been talking about this recently, but GMO put out some numbers on where they broke the emerging markets, IFA and US through the Russell 1000 and quintiles by valuation. And so what was interesting is, you know, in the US, the bottom, you know, quintile, the cheapest stocks are, I think it was like the fourth percentile relative to their own history in terms of the valuations. And then all the other four quintiles were essentially very, very overvalued, even kind of that GARPY, you know, growth at a reasonable price, very expensive relative to its own history. 
So to me, you know, the still in IFA and, and EM, it was actually the bottom two quintiles were kind of the cheapest they've ever been relative to history. And then those top three were extremely expensive still. So I think the, you know, consensus, I think is still, you know, on these like cool growthy tech companies, which again, I'm not trying to paint a broad, you know, stroke here, because I think there's differences between certain growth companies and tech stocks, but there's a lot out there that are still, I think, pretty overinflated and kind of reminds me of, you know, the dot-com bubble, which, you know, we started out this podcast talking about it. it took about, what, four years to play out until everything kind of, all the excess was kind of let out of the system. What are we like? We're about a year and three, four five months in potentially. So yeah, I think value is still kind of my favorite, just global value, whether it's EM, IFA, US, I think that, you know, it might be a bumpy road that doesn't, you know, it's not going to be a linear value outperforming growth, but those four years after the dot-com bubble, it was value outperformed growth. And there was about four drawdowns that were pretty big for value in between, but it held up through that recession that we had in 2002. No one ever really talks about that recession. And so I think we could maybe be in a similar situation today where everyone forgot about all the value boring stocks. You know, they want something that's super cool and makes, you know, some new technology. And I think there's some legitimacy to it, but it just, it's boring. And, you know, I think that's why it works, but it'll, it'll take some time to play out. And I think the third kind of view that I have is just the S&P 500, the top 10, 20 companies is still way too over-concentrated. So I do think there's probably you know, some antitrust stuff that's going to come through at some point where, you know, maybe Amazon breaks up, maybe Apple breaks up. I think there's got to be some, you know, something's going to have to give with those, you know, top, let's call it the top 10 just to make it easy. So I have been veering away from cap weighted US equity indexes, you know, the last year and a half or so more towards equal weight, other weighting schemes. I like active management, but I think people confuse active management sometimes with alternative index weighting, you know, ways that you can weight stocks with an index, right? And so I think to me, that's like a good middle ground between passive, which I think most people think of passive and indexes as market cap weighted stuff. And it's, you know, if you want to build a low cost, bare bones, super cheap portfolio, cap weight your equity and bond, then you'll be at the cheapest in the industry. But <laughs> you don't have to go full active. You can kind of step over and do equal weighted S&P and just do little changes here and there. I like that approach. And I think it's been pretty useful over the last year and a half or so. Excellent. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking time out to uh, talk with us today. And one of the things we want to do, I guess we can call this intro to Aaron Gilman in 60 seconds, or we can call it the lightning round. We want to kind of really find out more about you, kind of you know, what makes you tick and what you like. And so we're going to be asking you a couple of quick fire questions here, variety of topics. And we just, we have only have a minute to respond. So if you want to say pass, fine, but we're going to fire them out at you. I think you've been you know great so far and you know we're really happy to have you on board. So are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Nickname? Gilly. Hobby? Basketball, tennis. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Best book about investing or finance? Liar's Poker. I like that one starting out. What would you be doing if you weren't sitting across from us right now and being an advisor? Maybe an engineer or computer programmer, software engineer. Favorite musical artist or band? On my radio in my car, I listen to stand-up comedy exclusively, so I'm not a big music guy either. Bucket list, travel destination. Probably Fiji would be cool. Hidden talent. I'm actually really good at handiwork with myself in terms of my own projects and whatnot, so I know how to pretty much do electric and plumbing and all that stuff, kind of self-taught as well. YouTube. Office or remote? Office. Best lunch spot near your location? I'm not a lunch guy, honestly. I, usually, oh, okay. I work through lunch, typically just a little handful of almonds. 60-40 portfolio, a classic or a relic? I think the concept are still true, but I'd say classic. Would you rather have dinner with Warren Buffett or Elon Musk? Oh man, definitely Warren Buffett. 
how can people find you? Social websites, you know, do you have, what's your website address? So I'm a bit of a pariah in this regard. I have LinkedIn as the only social media I have, honestly. Yeah, I might have an Instagram account, but I don't even have the app on my phone. So I, you know, it kind of goes in the same vein as not watching CNBC. I don't, I don't pay attention to social media either. I just do my own thing. And, you know, I feel like things will take care of themselves. But my fiance handles social media. She sucks down <laughs> enough screen time for the both of us. <laughs> well, then fair enough. What is your company's website then? Ifpartners.com is our website. And then my LinkedIn is just Aaron Gilman. So those are the two spots where you can find me. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank absolutely. Thank you, man. Thanks, man. Good to spend some time with you. Thank you. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just getting started, the Active Advisor brought to you by Harbor Capital offers professional insights for the financial advisor community. Visit us at harborcapital.com to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to the Active Advisor on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on investment trends, tried and tested research methods, and what your industry peers are up to. From all of us at Harbor Capital, thanks for tuning in. And now for important disclosures. This material is for informational purposes and is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of 9th of March 2023 and are subject to change. The opinions expressed by the speakers do not necessarily represent the views of Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. to be reliable and are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections and forecasts. There is no guarantee that any of these views will come to pass. This material may not be representative of the experience of other individuals. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the viewer. This material is not legal, tax or accounting advice. Please consult with a qualified professional for this type of advice. Investing involves risk including the risk of loss. Specific companies and issuers are mentioned for educational purposes only and should not be deemed a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Any companies mentioned do not necessarily represent current or future holdings of any investment products. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. This material is prepared by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. is not affiliated with Capital Conclusions Corporation. All trademarks or product names mentioned herein are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023 Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. All rights reserved.